Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for the morning you have blessed us with. And I pray that our, our voices and our hearts and our prayers have been pleasing to you. And now, Father, will you bless not just the, the teaching of your word, but, Father, the hearing of your word and the applying of your word. And, Lord, as we, we talk about your continued great faithfulness and comfort and care. Certainly may you be glorified, but we may we also be blessed by it. Tremendous truths that we will read from your scripture this morning. We thank you. We give you praise and want you to receive all the glory, God, in your son Jesus' name. Amen. So with that, I want to direct you to one of the all-time just most amazing passages concerning the great faithfulness of God in our afflictions. One that has given me hope, one that has blessed me over and over, and I pray uh, has also blessed you, but will be a tremendous blessing to you this morning. With that, please go ahead and turn to Lamentations chapter 3, verse 19. Lamentation, that's right, that's in the Old Testament. So you got to go back a little bit there. Um, you got, uh, of course, the prophet Isaiah and Jeremiah, and then we have this little book, Lamentations. And as you turn there, I want to just share with you a, a, a short story. There was a missionary, he was a medical missionary, named Dr. Thomas Lambie, formerly of Abyssinia, before it became Ethiopia, and he had talked about how he had forded many swift and bridgeless streams and rivers in Africa. The danger in crossing a body of water like this lies in, of course, being swept off one's feet, being carried downstream to greater depths, or slammed against hidden rocks or not-so-hidden rocks and boulders. I can vouch that crossing a river can be treacherous. I am a fly fisherman. And I love nothing more than being out in the stream in my waders. And if it means that i got to get across that stream to get to a prime fishing hole on the other side, man, I'm going to do it. And you got your staff, and you're kind of plodding your way through the, through the water, and the water is rushing at you, and you're hoping and praying that it was all worth it. <laughs> in any case, Dr. Lambie learned from the indigenous peoples there the best way to make such a hazardous crossing. The man who is about to cross finds a large stone, the heavier the better, and he lifts it up to his shoulder, and he carries it across the stream as sort of a, a ballast, a weight that will keep him steady. The extra weight of the stone will keep his feet solid on the bed of the river so he can cross safely without being swept away. And Dr. Lambie drew this application while crossing the perilous rivers of life, we are in constant danger of afflictions, trials, yes, even enemies, threatening to knock us off our feet, drown us or slam us against the rocks. And we, friends, need a ballast to keep us steady in the current. Well, this morning we are going to learn about this very great and faithful ballast in the Christian's life, the Christian's walk. I want to just give you some context for our passage this morning. Lamentations was written by Jeremiah, a.k.a. what was he known as? The what kind of prophet? 
weeping prophet, exactly, and with good reason. Around 586 B.C., his king Nebuchadnezzar brought total destruction upon the city of Jerusalem, toppling walls and towers and homes and, and buildings and, of course, burning the temple. This was after 40 years of Jeremiah already having faithfully executed his office as prophet to God or prophet of God to Judah, telling the people of God's impending judgment against their ongoing sin and, in fact, calling them to repentance. And by the way, most of their sin centered around the just grotesque idolatry, including even the sacrificing of children to the false god Moloch. Now, of course, you maybe remember that the people scoffed at Jeremiah. They didn't just scoff at him, actually. They, they scorned him, and they did horrible things to him. He was threatened. He was plotted against. He was put on trial. He was put in the stockade. He was beaten. He was thrown into prison multiple times. He had to flee wicked King Jehoiakim. He was thrown into a pit of mud and left for dead at the hands of evil King Zedekiah. His was a life... That was one of tremendous difficulty and conflict. And in his 40 years of preaching judgment, he never saw the nation repent. Never. No real fruit for this faithful ministry. And it's funny because I was, Jonah had popped into my mind about when I was going over the study. And you think, well, Jonah at least got to witness the repentance of Nineveh. Although, what did he do? He grumbled about it. He wasn't so happy. It ticked him off. Jeremiah witnessed nothing but the continued flagrant sin of the people and his own distresses. And now in this book that we find ourselves in this morning, he laments over them. The Hebrew title for the book is simply Akah, which literally means how. But in the sense of dismay is in how. How could these things be? How could this happen? How, how dark things are. And then early Jewish rabbis started calling it loud cries or lamentations because that is exactly what Jeremiah is doing. And this is reminiscent of what God instructed Jeremiah to say to the people in Jeremiah 7.29. Cut off your hair and cast it away and take up a lamentation on the bare heights for the Lord has rejected and forsaken the generation of his wrath. And so what is it that Jeremiah is lamenting over? Well, in chapter 1, he laments over his own sorrow, over Judah's um, exile to Babylon, and, and the destruction and devastation of Jerusalem, both as punishment for their rejection of God. In chapter 2, he laments over God's anger, first from the Lord's perspective, followed by his own, wrapping up the chapter with a, a prayer of lament that he offers back to God, which then brings us to chapter 3. And instead of summarizing the first 18 verses, I want us to read them because they will give you just some very keen context and make what Jeremiah says in our text of verses 19 to 24 all the more astounding. Now, as we read verses 1 to 18, I want to say they can be a little disconcerting. <clears throat> because, see, we witness the sovereignty of God through what Jeremiah says in a way that we're, we're kind of not used to normally hearing. As Jeremiah attributes all of his woes and reasons for lamenting back to God. He doesn't do so sinfully. 
It's just the truth of the situation and how God ordained, orchestrated, and brought about Judah's affliction and Jerusalem's destruction. And of course, Jeremiah, he he takes this personally as he is very much part of this kingdom and the people, though not in sin himself. And even though Jeremiah has been faithful in his obedience to the Lord, he has also reaped God's affliction, even on a personal level, though somewhat indirectly. In other words, it's not that that God was inflicting sorrow or, or any physical malady specifically on Jeremiah as some kind of consequence to him, but rather when evil people didn't like what Jeremiah was saying, guess what? They did evil things to him. And wicked and, and, and really atrocious things that God allowed to take place. And in fact, in, in chapter 3, verse 32, Jeremiah even acknowledges that God is the one who caused his grief. Now, I also want to say, please don't misunderstand this. Folks, because this in no way is to say that God is the author of evil or wickedness. He is absolutely not. Amen? This is not what Jeremiah is saying. Men's wicked and sinful hearts is where evil is born. God is altogether perfect and holy and righteous and just. And it is absolutely in God's right, even his obligation to exact consequences and or punishment for evil deeds. In fact, this is called the justice of God. And yes, like Jeremiah, we too, as believers, can be affected by this directly or indirectly, especially when we stand strong in the gospel amidst a, a, a very perverse and wicked generation. And in addition, God can cause whatever tragedy or hardship or affliction or difficulty or disease or death, whatever He wants in our lives for His glory. And ultimately for our good. I mean you might remember the affliction of Joseph. And the evil done to him by wicked people. And on the other hand these were things that were all sovereignly, sovereignly orchestrated by God himself. As Joseph said to his brothers. As for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. And of course, we should never forget Romans 8, 28. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who are called, to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. That's right. So with this all being said, look with me to chapter 3, verse 1, where Jeremiah is associating himself with Judah, and as well, he is speaking also personally, and and know that every time Jeremiah mentions his or he, he's referring to the Lord God. Chapter 3, verse 1 of Lamentations. Jeremiah laments, I am the man who has seen affliction because of the rod of his wrath. He has driven me and made me walk in darkness and not in light. Surely against me he has turned his hand repeatedly all the day. He has caused my flesh and my skin to waste away. He has broken my bones. He has besieged and encompassed me with bitterness and hardship. In dark places he has made me dwell like those who have long been dead. He has walled me in so that I cannot 
go out. He has made my chain heavy. Even when I cry out and call for help, he shuts out my prayer. He has blocked my ways with hewn stone. He has made my paths crooked. He is to me like a a bear lying in wait, like a lion in secret places. He has turned aside my ways and torn me to pieces. He has made me desolate. He bent his bow and set me as a target for the arrow. He made the arrows of his quiver to enter into my inward parts. I have become a laughing stock to all my people. They're mocking song all the day. He has filled me with bitterness. He has made me drunk with wormwood. He has broken my teeth with gravel. He has made me cower in the dust. My soul has been rejected from peace. I have forgotten happiness. So I say my strength has perished. And so has my hope from the Lord. These are some pretty intense words from Jeremiah. And you just think, wow, what a, what a despairing and distressing place Jeremiah is in. I mean, you can, you can feel the gravitas of where he's at mentally, emotionally, spiritually. The man is spent. He is wasted. You might say he's baked, cooked, and fried. He's about at the end of his rope. He's had all he can take. To say he is depressed might even be an understatement at this point. And not only does he say that his strength has left him, but even his hope in the Lord. There was a dear brother at our previous church up in Weaverville who just had had a lot of physical things happen to him, an older senior saint. And he's just one of these rock-solid believers, you know? One of those people that you just kind of never worry about is faith being strong. But after time and time again in the hospital over and, and over and surgery and more surgery and things weren't helping. And, and, and he, he, he found himself despairing and, and, and in a sense feeling like the Lord had, had left him. Like the Lord had even abandoned him, but he was also quick then to add on, but I know he hasn't. But pastor, he would say that's what it feels like. And I think to some degree, we're at some time in our lives, and maybe even recently, we have all felt these same things that Jeremiah is experiencing, friends. You have felt affliction and hurt, whether that be physical or emotional. You have sensed more darkness than light in your life. You've been racked maybe with disease or experienced the death of others and, and maybe in a way that has not been very comforting. You've had bitterness or hardship surround you. You have felt like your life has kind of been misdirected or maybe that it's had no direction or maybe that it's been in a dead end or hit a dead end. You've experienced enemies lying in wait for you, inflicting pain upon you. You've been oppressed and weighted down with life's burdens. Maybe you have felt broken and alone. And and maybe you've been mocked or gossiped about, made to cower. You've really sensed no peace or contentment, no happiness or joy in your life. And maybe you too have even felt like God has been against you or that God has turned away from you. 
You've prayed and prayed, but felt like there's been no answer from the Lord. And maybe you've even felt God's wrath, whether due to your own sin or or even indirectly because of the sin of others. And maybe you have felt like Jeremiah that your strength has perished and so has your hope from the Lord. Well, this is where Jeremiah is, folks. And and let me just say that if Jeremiah ended things right here at this moment in verse 18, that would be pretty tragic, wouldn't it? Who wouldn't, well... We would, if that were us, basically be left holding the bag, so to speak, wondering, so what is, is that it? I mean, affliction, difficulty, heartache, distress, no hope, and now what, I'm just on my own? I've got to find my own way uh, to bring comfort and relief. I've got to, to kind of try and pull my own self up from the, my own bootstraps. So what, maybe I should reach out to some of the self-help gurus of the day or or maybe give psychology or psychiatry a try maybe it's time to pursue some more worldly pleasures to at least try and kind of mask some of the hurt and pain maybe even drugs or alcohol will just give me some quick relief or maybe there's just flat out no relief to be found this is my new lot in life distress and despair are my new normal Thankfully, friends, guess what? There's a verse 19 and following. Amen. Indeed, Jeremiah doesn't end things here because he continues on. And as he does, we will see from our text this morning four primary ways that God's great faithfulness is still at play and how he brings relief and hope to your afflictions. And and, and the first thing that he shows us is that God remembers. God remembers. This is our first point. We might even add, God remembers and knows your afflictions. This is in verse 19. Look back at verse 19 where Jeremiah laments to the Lord, remember my affliction and my wandering, the wormwood and bitterness. Jeremiah, friends, is wanting to keep these things before the mind of the Lord for the Lord's attention. So, so even though he has just confessed that his strength and hope from the Lord have perished, yet Jeremiah doesn't give up bringing his request back to the Lord. That the Lord would remember his affliction and miseries, his, his wandering, which is to say that he has been cast out. Wormwood, a bitter plant indicating hardship or sorrow and bitterness, which can be translated as gall. Venom, poison. He is crying out, Lord, please acknowledge the troubles, the pain and misery that I have had, that I have been cast out and I've been filled with hardship and sorrow and and, and been bitten with some poisonous venom, Lord. And this prayer of Jeremiah for God to remember stands in contrast to the fact that God has not remembered the daughter of Zion, Israel, in the day of his anger, according to chapter 2, verse 1. Here, Jeremiah is crying out to God to remember all the suffering that he has gone through. 
And, and you have to ask yourself, well, why would someone make that request if not that they had some sense of hope that God would actually hear and do something about it? Now, along with this, Jeremiah also remembers. He remembers. Look at verse 20. Surely my soul remembers and is bowed down within me. That because of 40 years of afflictions and wandering and wormwood and bitterness that causes his soul to sink, to be bowed down, to be depressed. You say, yeah, who wouldn't be? I get it. But here's the most amazing thing about Jeremiah. Because he almost immediately shifts and turns a corner here remembering something else. This brings us to our second point. Remembrance brings hope. Remembrance brings hope. Look at verse 21. This I recall to my mind. Therefore I have hope. This just floors me. It floors me. Friends, what totally astounds me here is how Jeremiah goes from everything he has just said in verses 1 to 18 about his afflictions and being cast out and the wormwood and the bitterness that the Lord has caused him, culminating in his declaration that his strength and hope from the Lord have perished to the statement then that we see in verse 21, this I recall to my mind, therefore I have hope. Now, in a second, we're going, we're going to see just what these things are that he recalls. But I just think what an amazing about face he does in such a short amount of time. And you think, well, yeah, how, I mean, how is that possible? How is that possible? And I would just say that this might be the difference between someone like a Jeremiah or a Joseph or a Job or even a David. Some of us who might be a little more immature in the faith. When things go south and it seems like God is nowhere to be found, how long is it before some of us abandon our hope or seek to find relief in other places? Now, these men that I just mentioned are men that have suffered greatly at times, and yet even in the midst of their greatest afflictions, and even though they might have even felt like the Lord had forsaken them or that their faith had, had failed, neither was completely true. So how can this be? Well, first, they, they continue to have a steadfast and rock-solid faith that God will eventually make good on all of His promises. As Jeremiah will say in verses, uh, verse 31, for the Lord will not reject forever. And then in verse 32, he acknowledges, for if He causes grief then he will have compassion according to his abundant loving kindnesses. Oh, did you get that, folks? Did you get that? Because what a tremendous statement about the sovereignty of God and the comfort that comes from knowing God is the one behind the grief. Say what? What what are you saying, Pastor? Yes, because at some point, see, God will always bring relief to your afflictions. So since he is the one who causes the grief, Jeremiah is absolutely certain that God will also be the one to bring relief. In addition, men like Jeremiah, Joseph, Job, they keep their souls 
humble before the Lord, ever mindful that the Lord is, is not one part of their life, but the Lord rather is their life. He is their whole portion, as we will see in verse 24. So no matter how distressed or distant they might feel from him, or, or even how heavy his hand seems to be upon them, they are never completely disconnected from God. They always turn back to him, as the Lord is always at the center of their universe. I used to be, a, a, even as a new believer, one that kind of compartmentalized my life. And I, I think maybe you might, some of you might be familiar with this, where, where I thought, okay, well, here's um, my, my uh, job, and here's my um, um, hobbies, and here's my family, and my wife, and then here's God, too. And here's my, my spiritual walk. And they're all kind of on the same playing field. And then at one point early on, both Julie and I realized... That's wrong. That's just not what the Bible teaches. What the Bible teaches is that God needs to be whoosh, the top of the pyramid, right? The pinnacle, the top piece. And everything else in our life, no matter what it is, needs to fall under him being really our all in all. Beloved, God needs to be your default setting. He needs to be the center of your universe so that in the midst of life's greatest afflictions and sufferings even though you might feel like God has left you and your faith is waning deep down you know he really hasn't you can still trust in his promises you know that if he is the one causing your afflictions he is the one who will bring relief and there is every Hope. Now moving on. What specifically did Jeremiah recall to his mind about the Lord in verse 21 that renewed his hope? Five amazing graces of God that we will see in verses 22 to 24. Five amazing graces. And so our, our point three is that hope is found in a faithful God. Hope is found in a faithful God. And here's our kind of letter A, if you will. I'm t definitely one of those outliney kind of guys. But first, his loving kindnesses. This is in verse 22a, where he just says, The Lord's loving kindnesses indeed never cease. Now, the Hebrew word here for loving kindnesses is hased. And it has the meaning of covenant loyalty or faithfulness. It represents an obligation to a community, be they relatives or friends or, or guests or even masters and servants. It is God obligating his love and kindness to us, his children, which frankly is part of his nature. It, it's, it's absolutely within his character to do so. It is also translated as mercy, love, goodness, kindness, favor, devotion, loyal deeds. It's a somewhat general term encompassing much. But, but what I think is unique about this and all of these graces that Jeremiah is now extolling is the quality given in their description. They are given a, a sort of divine spin if you will, which separates them from, from any way we as a human could display these same things. Now, in regard to God's loving kindnesses, Jeremiah says that they indeed never cease. The literal translation is that, that we are not consumed. 
That's kind of interesting, huh? Meaning no matter what, God will always, always intercede with his loving kindnesses. Remember the context of sinful, wayward Israel in Malachi 3.6. The prophet says, for I, the Lord, speaking on behalf of the Lord, for I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O sons of Jacob, are not consumed. God's loving kindnesses are such that he will bring relief even to this wayward nation as they will never cease. And friends, the fact is, as God's children, God's beloved, no matter what affliction you may go through or the distressing situation that you may find yourselves in or the suffering that that you are under, you will never Be consumed by it. For God's loving kindnesses will not allow it. God's loving kindnesses will always be there to help you endure. And indeed, they never cease. Amen. Secondly, letter B is we have his compassions. Also his mercy. For his compassions never fail. It's interesting because this, this word rahamim can, can also be translated as womb. And it signifies a deep and very natural bond. Isaiah uses it to describe the love of a nursing mother in 49.15. And in, 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 in the book of Isaiah, the psalmist David uh, uses it to describe the love and compassion of a father towards his children in Psalm 103.13, and as we read in Lamentations 3.31 and 32, God would always temper his discipline towards Israel with compassion. Again, for if he causes grief, then he will have compassion according to his abundant loving kindnesses. And again, what makes his characteristic unique and divine is the fact that God's compassions never what? Fail. They never end. They never become completed or finished or disappear or perish or change or dissipate or become weak or wane or waste away, friends. You will never face a situation that would be so overwhelming that his compassions would not not remedy or bring, bring relief. You can always count on them. Always, as your loving Father, God will always care for you because of that close and intimate bond that he has with you because he has called you and he has chosen you and he has made you his child and he loves you his compassions for you never fail here's another missionary story it was a blessing in fact i got to to speak to our missionary mr ransom over there uh, just in the last couple of weeks, because Ruth asked me to be a part of uh, getting together um, all of our missionaries, some little uh, video snippets uh, about their uh, their ministry, and it tremendously blessed me to be able to to um, talk with them and get to know them, and and we realized that we had friends in in common, and and um, so it, here's another missionary uh, another missionary anecdote. One of God's faithful missionaries, Alan Gardner experienced many physical difficulties and hardships throughout his service to the Savior. Despite his troubles, he said, while God gives me strength, 
failure will not daunt me. So in 1851, at the age of 57, he died of disease and starvation while serving on Picton Island at the southern tip of South America. And when his body was found, his diary lay nearby. It bore the record of hunger, thirst, wounds, and loneliness. You think he was afflicted? The last entry in his little book showed the struggle of his shaking hand. As he tried to write legibly, it read, I am overwhelmed with a sense of the goodness of God. Who can say that? Somebody who knows that God's compassions are never failing. Well, next is probably one of my all-time favorites. It's, 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 I think, my all-time favorite part of this passage of this text, and that is that we can have hope because of God's abundant grace. His abundant grace. We see this in verse 23 when he says, They, meaning his unceasing loving kindnesses and unfailing compassions are new every morning. Now, I have a confession to make. And I am man enough to do so. I'm a Broadway guy who loves show tunes, okay? I do. There it is. It's out there. And up in Weaverville, I directed a lot of plays, including the musical Annie. And of course, what is the big song that Annie sings? The sun will come out tomorrow. I'm not going to sing it for you, though. Sorry. This is actually a true song, biblically speaking, right? In the sense that every morning the sun rises and it brings a new day. And for us as children of the King, each day brings new loving kindnesses and compassions from Father God. You ever notice how you can go to bed just, just a wreck? A mess? The weight of life has just got you down and you finally make it to sleep. You wake up in the morning, and I think more often than not, at least for me anyway, things are just a little bit better. With the dawn comes hope, as darkness gives way to light. This was very uh, meaningful to Julie and I. Many of you remember and were in the Northridge earthquake. And we were, uh, hadn't been married all that long, we didn't have kids yet. And, uh, of course, whatever it was, like 4.30 in the morning, it, it woke us up out of a, a, you know, a dead sleep. I grew up in California, so Northern California. I'm used to earthquakes and whatnot, and, you know, just usually not a big deal. Kind of fun. You get in the doorframe and rock a little bit. Ah, oh, yeah, this is fun, you know? That one wasn't fun. It was not fun. It was pitch black dark, and things are shaking like we have never heard Things are falling and breaking and, and get up, get, get in the door frame, get in the door frame. You know, we're there and, and finally it stops. And as you know, it kept, you know, recurring and all the aftershocks. And, and I, I remember walking out into the living room, our house here in Burbank over on Screenland Drive. And, and, uh, and then realized real quick, there's broken glass everywhere. The TV is down. And it's like just stuff all over the place. And, and, and we ended up finally, I think, sitting down somewhere in our, our living room. And it was a very unnerving feeling. Because, again, all the streetlights were out. It was pitch black. And so many things go through your mind. And well, you were young, immature, and, 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 um, and not even yet believers. 
at that point. And, and so, you know, you're like, oh, gosh, are people going to be looting? Are people going to be showing up at the house? Are people, you know, are, are, are we in danger? Are we, you know, blah, 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 and all these things. And it was like, and the darkness just made it worse. And all we could wait for, all we had hope in at that time was just to see the sun start coming up. To just have a little bit of sun. And as it did, it finally, it was like, okay, I think everything's going to be okay. Oh, my goodness, look at the damage. You know, but it, it, it brought a, a certain sense of, with the morning, the new morning, a certain sense of relief. And, and it's not just that God, God's graces are always sufficient, as we see in 2 Corinthians 12, 9, but they are also in great abundance, friends. John the Baptist, in speaking of Jesus in John chapter 1, verse 16, said, For of his fullness we have all received, and grace upon grace. In Ephesians 2, 7, we are told how God will show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Folks, you will never, ever be bereft of God's graces. The well will never run dry. He will never say to you, gosh, sorry. Yeah, you know what? You've used up your quota of grace for the day. <laughs> I just don't have any more to give. Sorry. You're on your own. I'll see you again, you know, next time. I'm all out. No, friends, God offers to you enough loving kindnesses and compassions for each and every day, every morning, a fresh supply is delivered to you like the manna in the wilderness. God's graces for any affliction will never be exhausted. Never, ever, 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 ever. And these incredible and amazing truths then led Jeremiah to cry out this classic phrase. What does he say? Great is your faithfulness. Verse 23, this is our next point. His great faithfulness. What hope is there, friends, in God's great faithfulness? Oh my goodness. In fact, we're going to sing of this great faithfulness from that classic song in just a few minutes. Now, we strive to be faithful in things, don't we, as, as, as Christians? Right now, many of us are trying to be faithful with our daily Bible reading app, or, or we try to be faithful in our service to the Lord, or faithful even in our jobs, or be faithful friends, or parents, or faithful spouses. But unfortunately, our faithfulness in this life will always be less than flawless. But what makes God's faithfulness so great is that it is perfect faithfulness. It is complete faithfulness, which is also to say that God is totally trustworthy. As one author writes, the bedrock of faith is the reality that God keeps all his promises according to his truthful, faithful character, end quote. And again, it's not in his character to be anything less than faithful. In fact, it would be impossible for him to to be anything other than greatly faithful. And because of his love for us, Frankly, he is pleased to do so. Which is also so amazing here, or what is also so amazing here, is that in the midst of this affliction, this suffering, this depression that Jeremiah is experiencing, that he can find it in himself to say, great is your faithfulness. I mean, what faith Jeremiah had in the trustworthiness of God. 
Now, this might lead us to ask the question, and yeah, okay, where does that come from? Where does that come from? He tells us in verse 24. Verse 24, the Lord is my portion, says my soul, therefore I have hope in him. Portion meaning my share, my possession, my inheritance. Psalm 73 verse 26, the psalmist writes, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is my strength of my heart and my portion forever. Now we started to touch on this earlier when we we said that people like a Jeremiah or a Joseph or, or a Job or a David were those who kept themselves humble before the Lord, understanding that the Lord is not to be one part of their life, but rather the Lord is their life. He is that, that, that top piece of the pyramid, again, which every part comes under. He is to be the very center of your universe. He is to be our all in all. Frankly, friends, he is the source of all joy and all blessing. God is our portion, satisfies every need, and especially in the midst of trials, to know that God is your share, your possession, your inheritance. Frankly, we may have nothing else in this life, but shouldn't that be enough? I ask you, do you recognize that the Lord is your everything, both in this life and in the life to come? Of course, that starts with what? The gospel. It starts with the good news of Jesus Christ come to save wayward sinners like you and me. It starts by believing, trusting, repenting of one's sins, and putting your faith in Christ as God who came to earth to live the perfect life that that you and I could never live. To become a sacrifice in our place. uh, To sacrifice himself to become a substitute in our place, right? To actually become sin for us. Dying the death that we should have died. And that if we would repent and believe, turn away from our sin and and turn to God believing that Jesus did go to the cross on our behalf, but not just that he died and stayed dead in the ground. That would be pretty tragic as well, wouldn't it? But no, he resurrects three days later conquering sin and conquering death, showing us that he has eternal life himself, And offering us that same eternal life for all who would put their faith and trust in Him. If that's you this morning and you have never done that, I pray that you would do that right now. Because today is the day of your salvation. Do not leave here, beloved, without having confessed your sin to the Lord and putting your faith, trust, and hope in His Son, Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. Know that you will receive the Holy Spirit and you will look forward to an eternity for Him that is tried and true, absolutely 100% rock solid. Your salvation cannot be taken away 
cannot be forfeited. You can never give it back. You can never sin so greatly after that that God decides to revoke it. You will live with hope. You will live with eternal hope and you will live with the hope for the day. I'm going to close with a short poem. Came across this. It's by John Newton. John Newton who wrote Amazing Grace. It's called The Lord is My Portion. He says, From pole to pole, let others roam and search in vain for bliss. My soul is satisfied at home. The Lord my portion is. Jesus, who on his glorious throne rules heaven and earth and sea, is pleased to claim me for his own and give himself to me. His person fixes all my love, his blood removes my fear. And while he pleads for me above, his arm preserves me here. His word of promise is my food, his spirit is my guide. Thus daily is my strength renewed and all my wants supplied. For him I count as gain each loss. Disgrace for him renown. Well may I glory in his cross while he prepares my crown. Let worldliness then indulge their boast. Uh, Excuse me, let worldlings then indulge their boast. How much they gain or spend. Their joys must soon give up the ghost. But mine shall know no end. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you. We thank you, Lord, as we learned last week about the tremendous comfort that you offer your children. We thank you, Lord, for the truths that we have learned this week about your great faithfulness, Father, and your loving kindnesses and your compassions. And, and Father, you being our portion. And, oh, Lord, when the trouble of life afflicts us, In whatever form or fashion, may we fall back on these tremendous truths. And Lord, even when we might feel far away, we know that you have us. You hold us. Even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we will fear no evil because you are with us. We give you all the praise and all the glory and all the thanksgiving. In Jesus' very precious name we pray. Amen. Scripture quotations taken from the New American Standard Bible. Copyright by the Lockman Foundation.